All right. Before we begin today, I, I put an outline up um, just to kind of give us a, a glimpse of what we're going to be studying, what we've studied so far, um, the greeting and the prayer, verses 1 and 2, and the purpose and the theme. And just by way of reminder, because um, we all need reminders, and Peter reminded us of our need for reminders, that just quickly go over what we, we covered last week in the first four verses about identifying that Jude, the half-brother of Christ, and the brother of James was the author of this letter. Um, we see that from his use of the word Adelphos for brother there, meaning brother of the same mother or the same womb. And also in a lesser sense from the fact that Jude didn't designate himself an apostle. He didn't declare his apostleship much like James didn't either, his brother who wrote the, his letter to the early Jewish church, Jewish believers. But Jude declares himself to be a slave of Christ and submitting himself to the will and the authority of Jesus Christ. And with this, he declares and establishes for the readers and for us his authority to write this letter and to, to give significance and importance to the message. Because as you read this, um, you see the urgency in Jude's writing, the purpose of this letter. And we can only estimate that from the writing, the way he addressed the beloved saints, that that. This was to a single church or to maybe a group of small churches, some home churches. Um, it wasn't to the universal church, the Catholic church, not the denomination, but the universal church. And he clearly identifies the recipients and the readers of this letter with the term the called. And the use of this with the, the two very significant participles, beloved and kept, he's identifying these true saints specifically as the called ones by God, as loved by God in fellowship with him, and also being kept for Christ by his power until the ultimate, the final salvation is revealed. And, and Ryan and I were talking about this afterwards last week, how you, you can't separate these three. You can't be called and not loved and beloved by the Father and in Christ. Yes, there's invitations sent out. The gospel is an invitation to all, but the specific called ones you can't separate, you can't be in Christ without being called. So just kind of a thing we we're pondering over, which was very interesting. So I appreciate that, Ryan. But the, then Jude exhorts and prays for these saints, asking for mercy, for peace, and for love to be multiplied to them. Because they're in the midst of turmoil in this church. There's strife and division that's being brought by these false teachers, these intruders. And even some of these believers are being led astray, young in the faith, being led astray by what these guys are teaching and how they're living. And then Jude, in verses 3 and 4, he revealed to us the theme and the purpose of this letter. Remember that he was fully intending to write a letter exhorting these saints, reminding them of their common salvation, being both the message of the gospel being given to all, but for these saints, it's a common salvation that's only under one head, and that is Christ but with the faith that is common to all who believe. And it's also common whether they be Jew, Greek, Scythian, barbarian, slave, or free. And these saints were likely Hellenistic Jews in the midst of a, a Greco-Roman society. And what happened is that Jude is suddenly and providentially redirected to write them to make sure they properly deal with these false teachers by casting them out of their midst. Right? Wrong? No, okay, just checking. <laughs> no, he wrote to them a transcendent appeal. He implored them to contend earnestly for the faith that had been handed down once for all 
from Christ to the apostles and now to them to strive with a purpose. And this is an ever-repeated call to the activity of those who will reaffirm the truth. For that tradition and that teaching that had been passed down from Jesus Christ to the apostles and now to them. And as we saw, that faith included all the righteous life and the atoning death of Christ, being sealed and indwelt by the Spirit. And in the theme of this letter, Judah's getting across the point to exemplify a holy lifestyle that flows out of the believer because of this effective work of God's grace in Christ. This faith was worth all the earnest efforts and struggles. Does anyone remember why Jude, why Jude is writing this letter to them? It was urgent? Exactly why? Why was it urgent? Exactly, exactly. He used a real derogatory term for him, certain persons, <clears throat> and they're marked. He said they're prescripted for condemnation as ungodly. Those with a lack of reverence for God, they fail to worship him rightly, both with heart, mind, and strength. And they crept in unnoticed alongside these saints, beginning to pervert and defile them and deceive them with what they were saying, but also their lifestyles were a blatant demonstration of, of how they took God's grace and used it as a license for sin. They were fundamentally autonomous. They cast off all authority and any obedience to Christ. So this next section, Judgment of the Intruders, covers verses 5 to 16. We're not going to cover all that today. I'm, I'm thankful. Yes, I'm sorry. Just something that just this week that I was, cause I was going through the, the letter again, and that really stuck out to me is in verse 4, where he says that these people crept in unnoticed, and maybe that's why he has such a high urgency, because all of a sudden he's realizing that the flock is not even noticing that these people have crept in, and so they look just like the rest of everybody else at first glance. Exactly. He's realizing how much harm there could be because it's, it's really starting to creep into the flock, and all of a sudden they're going to be led astray, so it's, it's where, you know. Uh, a huge urgency. And, and I agree, and, and that kind of gives you the thought that they, they might have been young believers to not really recognize this immediately and see that, hey, the these... Church as a whole? Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, you know, so I, I was... <laughs> Spirit of God's wonderful. I was on that same theme this week thinking about that. That's why I kind of went back and said, yeah, I think these might have been young believers because yeah. mature believers are going to, you know, pick up on those things pretty quick, you know. Yes, sir. Uh, not only what Brother Ryan was picking up on, but, you know, whether, whether we speculate they were young or, or not young believers, the fact of the matter is, is that if they came in unnoticed, it was probably um, doctrines that we would consider not that important. However, they must have been so important that this obviously letter yeah. had to be written. Yeah. So it was it's some minor details about the gospel instead of, uh, you know, upholding uh, the, the doctrine of God in its proper way, they, they might have changed something just exactly. a bit, you know, like modern day Mormons. Or yeah. Did God really say that? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I kind of, I know this isn't in scripture, I'm not going to build a theology around it, but I was kind of envisioning, how did Jude find out about this, you know? possibly one of the members of the church, a mature believer, 
took off down one of those Roman roads, went to find Jude. Hey, remember our church, man? This is what's going on, you know? So very likely. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. So today we're just going to cover five to ten, the three historical examples, and then Jude's applications to these intruders, their three sins. So Jude begins verses five to seven. I'm going to read those again for us real quick. So Jude, verses five to seven. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude starts this section with typological warnings from the history of Israel, the angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is what's called a fuller disclosure formula. And it's, it's with his words, now I desire to remind you. And they're familiar to us. If you think of Romans um, 1.13, Paul says, I do, want, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant. And Galatians 1.11, he says, um, for I would have you to know, brethren, these type of, of disclosures. So Jude's transition, transition statement is, for one, a little bit more honoring for the readers, and it's best um, rendered here in the NASB. Yes, Mike. What I'm understanding, though, is like, I believe Brother Jude here is warning the church and the people against a demonic He's warning what's going to happen to these guys. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So this, this introduction, this fuller disclosure is used as a connection between the readers, all things once for all, and the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And, and it's a reminder to the readers that this gospel message that had been preached to them and how they knew this gospel of Christ compared to the words and the messages of the intruders. As fallen, infallible, in some cases older, we all benefit from these, these types, types of reminders. So this is what Jude begins to do, and he starts with another triad, is another triplet of judgments that the Lord himself inflicted in the past. And these are not mere fables and stories. I was telling Landon, th this verse 5 almost got me on a really serious rabbit trail for a while. I thought I was going to go that route, but, but just considering the judgment that befell Israel in this time, considering how many Israelites were called out of Egypt, they went through the wilderness seeing God demonstrate his power in, in the tabernacle. But when they went to spy out the land, how many of all, what was it, 500,000, 600,000 maybe, Israelites, how many believed God at the end? Four. That, that just, that humbled me. Um, but anyway, back to this. <laughs> As I said, that's a, that's a large... And look at the names of the men that were called out of the tribe. It's just amazing of God's grace. Anyway, I mentioned these are all typological because they both, 
they, they both talk about and reveal the holy character of God. And they convey and the, and the ultimate eternal penalty that's, that will be received for sin. And Jude's describing these three historical examples of judgment from Scripture, which, which hold the supreme importance. But what he was revealing and st- he revealed in studying these verses was all the related Jewish material that's available that not only taught the same accounts, but how the, the pre-Jesus community even saw the important need to deal with these types of defectors within their own community. So Jude begins with the desert generation of Israel. And note, the, these three judgments are not chronological by any means. But you may have seen this, Ryan. He kind of builds a crescendo of punishment here. I mean, the, the, the severity, the intensity of, of God's judgment. So the first example from Jude has many potential references. Um, is it drawn from Exodus 32, Numbers 14, any others? Because Exodus 32 is dealing basically with, with the impatience of the people when Moses was on the mount. They began seeking another god. They asked Aaron to build a golden calf. Um, numbers 14, seeking, spying out the land. But there were other instances in Israel's rebellion. So let's turn over real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and look, look similar how Paul dealt with this. Actually, I have this in here. I believe this, this is what Jude is doing in his analogy because Paul... He combines all these incidents within Israel and actually includes some others. So 1 Corinthians 10, um, I'll read verses. Actually, Ryan, are you there? No. Oh, you want to read verses 6 through 13, please? Sure. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. One more? Yep. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Amen. Thank you. Now, what do we see as the Israelites' prominent response to God and all that he had done? Idolatry, immorality, presumption, testing, grumbling, ungrateful, complaining. Overall, lack of faith and failure to trust God and for all, all matters of life. This is very frightening when you consider all that God had revealed to them visibly, as I mentioned earlier. He provided their basic needs, the manna from heaven, protection, visible evidence of his presence. They saw and they still did not believe. Especially note verse 12, Paul is speaking of a pride or a haughty spirit in one. And what's happened to Peter and his boasting in Matthew 26. Now right at the start of this example, Chris, I know you'll appreciate this. We have a textual variant for the word Lord. That the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. 
many of the Greek manuscripts read Jesus, read Jesus instead of Lord. And there's much external evidence that suggests Jesus rather than Lord. Several, however, several scholars doubt that this reference could be Jesus, and they base it on the grounds that it was God who actually led Israel out of Egypt and ultimately destroyed the wicked angels. However, in Jude, in the immediate context, he uses kurios four times in this letter for Jesus. And even in the quote from First Enoch, which we'll see later on from the book of First Enoch, and this verse follows immediately in reference when verse 4 talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's true that, that most New Testament writers rarely use kurios, speaking of God, outside of Old Testament quotations. And they even interpret kurios in Old Testament text, representing the, the four-letter names of God, Yahweh and Jehovah, as Jesus so we have several examples in Scripture, John 12, 41, uh, Romans 10, 13, Hebrews 1, 10, and just what we read in 1 Corinthians 10, 9. So he is referring here to, to Jesus, that he was the one that had led Israel, saving a people out of the land of Egypt. I agree. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So what is Jude saying in all of this and reminding the readers of? Well, he politely, <laughs> he does a polite introduction in this section, and he's pointing out with the first piece of historical evidence that while the Lord on the one hand, while Jesus on the one hand had delivered the whole nation of Israel out of Egypt, he also destroyed through a long 40-year wandering in a desolate wilderness and with serpents, and with the earth opening up, the judgment on those who would not, who did not believe God. Those destroyed were not committed to God. They did not trust him. And the issue here is not with mere intellectual belief, but with a trust and commitment of themselves to him. Let's look at the words of, of meanings of Caleb. Um, this parallels that of the intruders who are showing in their lifestyle I guess you could call it their unfaith in denying Jesus or Christ as our only sovereign Lord. What Jude is warning the believing community that they cannot presume upon the grace of God, even if they are relying on some initial decision to follow Christ or just a previous baptism event as their assurance of future salvation, regardless of how they respond to the intruders. And the warning of Israel's apostasy speaks to all who think that just an initial commitment will secure some type of, of future heavenly destination without any ongoing obedience or holiness. So those who are of the household of God, beloved in God, will demonstrate the genuine, genuineness of their salvation in Christ by responding to these and any warning signs given. Because these warnings are also the means of grace by which God preserves his people until the end. Ignorance is simply neglecting these means appointed for attaining what one scholar, I really love this, for obtaining our eschatological salvation. And this raised some questions in my own mind thinking and reading through this. Is this saying to us that some of the genuinely saved may actually commit apostasy and forsake their salvation? 
Anybody want to try tackling that? <laughs> Not a Yeah, we're still sinners. We're still in daily need of grace, absolutely. So was this just a temporal judgment for these people, the Israelites, or was it an eternal one? This is pretty, this is very serious consideration. But according to what we just read in 1 Corinthians 10, and also, um, if you want to read later, Hebrews 3, 7. This was really good. To 4.13. Read and study, meditate on that. This is all speaking of eternal judgment. So to answer the question, I'm not going to skip it and side-skirt it. <laughs> to answer this question of believers being able to lose their salvation, you have to look at this, in this context, what Jude is saying first, from this perspective or analogy drawn between Israel and the church of Jesus Christ. Israel was at that time both a people of God and a political entity. And the Lord was calling a people, but he was also bringing into existence a new nation. So it follows that not every member of Israel was circumcised in heart. Um, And Jude set up an analogy between the saving of Israel out of Egypt as a physical act and the saving act of God to redeem a people in Jesus Christ. So we can conclude that not all Israelites called out of Egypt were truly circumcised in heart and belong to the people beloved of God. Those who sinned and perished in the wilderness were judged and destroyed, which says they didn't truly belong to the Lord at all. And I, can, I wanna quote one commentator on this, it was expressed very well in the context of Jude. Jude preserved the tension between warnings that are necessary for perseverance until the end, and God's grace that ensures that those who belong to him will experience eschatological salvation, continued faithfulness, and will demonstrate genuine salvation, and apostasy will ultimately reveal those who are not. I know last week we were talking afterwards about, you know, how, how would this church been able to see these, the false teaching and recognize the apostasy so well, maybe because they were so closely knit together a lot, they were in a community, maybe a house church, Today, we're, we're kind of isolated in all of our houses. We go to church, we fellowship, but we're still kind of have our, our private times away from one another. And just as Jude says here, the, these things are going to be revealed. They're going to come to light, no matter the time, the epoch, the situation, whether we're spread out in our own houses. When we come together in fellowship and worship, those things are going to come to light. It's going to be revealed. God's not going to let his church stay unpure and be infected like this. So, wow, we got a lot to go, sorry. (laughs) Jude immediately goes to the next example of sin of the angels, which comes from Genesis 6, uh, verses 1 to 4. And this is also, just like the previous one, this is also explained very thoroughly in Jewish tradition. So let me read those four verses real quick. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And as I mentioned, there's, there's external evidence in the Jewish traditional writings that describes this passage of, of the sin of the angels who came to earth. But Jude understands this passage in the same way they do. And I'm not going to go through all the examples and how they relate to Jude for just because of time. But Jude here is agreeing with the traditions at that time, both in the understanding of the text, but it also it, it forges a parallel between the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels, stating that it was sexual sin prominent in both instances. And we, you know, we know from Numbers 13 that, that the sons of Anak, the Nephilim, were also mentioned there as well. But in verse 6, Jude is charging angels with not keeping their position of authority in keeping with the domain or the sphere of influence that had been given to them. <clears throat> and the verb he uses here is terrasantos, and it's the same keep that used for God keeping them under darkness. These angels had determined to not guard their domain appointed to them by God. They'd abandoned or left their proper sphere. They came to the earth, became males, and then engaged in sexual relations. And we see a striking similarity here with the, with the intruders coming into the church. They abandoned their place in the community of these churches by their own immorality. The result of this apostasy for the angels was disastrous. Their angels now kept in eternal bonds and darkness, darkness until the judgment of the great day. And while Jude doesn't give us any specific details of the final judgment, he does re re relate to the writings of First Enoch when it says that they will be led into the bottom of the fire. This is what the First Enoch, one of the um, Jewish writings, says. But exactly where this place of temporary imprisonment is located, we can't be sure, but it is likely the, the second heaven that Peter describes in First Peter 3, 19 and 20, where it says, and this is talking about Christ preaching to the fallen angels, it says, in which also he went and made proclamations to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedience when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay. Any questions so far? Yes. Sorry. Yes, we're going to get to First Enoch here in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not part of the canon of scripture, no. It's, it is one of the, it's called a pseudepigraphical work. Somebody wrote it using the name First Enoch. It's one of the books of the Apocrypha. It's actually an interesting book to read if you've never done it. It, it, it. It's a book of praise and warning as well, talking about, we'll get to it, about Christ coming back with his thousands of angels to judge the unrighteous. That, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, so hold your thought, but thank you for the question. Yeah, it's, it's not a, in the canon of Scripture. At least we don't think it should be. <laughs> Some people do. No one else? Okay. So, we're going to go to verse 7, this third example of judgment. So, in the first two examples, one of a call people, 
the other of an appointed angelic host, both of which experienced God's abundant favor and then rebelled and abandoned it. If those weren't warning enough, Jude reminds his readers and us of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude doesn't limit the, the example to the two main cities, but also includes all the surrounding cities of Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar, although we know that Zoar was, was the place of refuge for Lot. And this is all in reference to Genesis 19, um, 21 to 26. So I'd like to read that too, real briefly. Um, these verses, Genesis 19, 21 to 26, <coughs> excuse me, the angel here speaking to Lot, the angel, he said to him, to Lot, behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. This was no effect rising from the blind forces of Mother Nature. This was a special act of the God of nature with a destruction that had not been seen before and hasn't been seen since. Every habitation in that area was overturned. Every animal, every plant, every man, every woman, every child perished in an overwhelming destruction. God's judgment had tarried long, but without timely repentance, his judgments are sure to fall. And Jude uses the words just as and in the same way to tie verse 7 back to the previous verse, connecting his charge that the sin of the angels and the sin of these cities are similar. They both gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And he uses a term here, ekporneuo, and this is the same term indicating sexual relations outside of marriage, <coughs> immorality. And, and in this context, it's made even more specific with a, a literal rendering of departed after a different type of flesh. This is a clear violation of the moral laws of purity in pursuing homosexual relations. Jude was not implying that these intruders into the church had sexual relations with angels or engaged in specific homosexual activity, but he's strongly emphasizing that those who sin had and will be judged, and these intruders were very likely guilty of sexual sins, as we'll see in the next verses. Do you have a question? No, I'm sorry. I thought somebody, okay. okay. Yes. Didn't didn't care for the poor. Yep. Yep. That's all Jude talks about here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
God's judgment is sure. Yeah. Unless you repent. So we're pretty much being warned by God, by yeah. His grace, yeah. to repent if you are in these things. You know, as you mentioned, included in their community, the sexual immorality was predominant, primary. But the, the other thing that's mentioned in Scripture is they forgot about the poor. They neglected the poor. They just cast them off. Enough said. <laughs> Yeah, it, it speaks of our days very clearly. Anyone else? Okay. All right, now we're going to get to the application for the intruders, verses 8 to 10. And here Jude details the three sins committed by these adversarial intruders that warrants judgment by God. He says, Yet in the same way these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. You might have expected Jude, I kind of did reading that first time, to begin with a statement about the intruders all being judged in the same way, but, but Jude chooses to announce their sins again in another triad, using a triplet here. But he connects the two sections together with the in the very same way phrase. And he's attempting to render this homoios as, as likewise well, if you attempt to, to render it as likewise, it's misleading since Jude did not intend to say that the intruders committed the exact same sins as fully described in verses 5 to 7. But you can see that the sins of these intruders were included in nearly all historical instances. So the things they were doing were covered by all three examples given in 5 to 7, but not all of their sins were, were inclusive of what these intruders were doing all of which are going to receive judgment, have received judgment. But now he refers to these intruding, these men, as, okay, you have to be patient with me here. This is a long Greek word. (laughs) As dreamers, which is a participle, and it, it also is being used to modify the three verbs here, defile, reject, and revile. And what, what he means is that these purported spiritual dreams of these intruders are really the basis for all their immorality and all their depravity. These dreams are referring to a type of, of visionary experience, something very much like the prophets of the old received, which is the same word. It's only used in one other place in the New Testament. Oh, that's it. Acts 2.17, where Peter's referring back to Joel 2.28. But the instance in Acts is positive. It's for the Lord. It's of the Lord. But in the case of these intruders, it's the basis for their immoral behavior. It's their excuse for license to sin. But what, in essence, what they're saying is these, these revelatory visions they're having, there's dreams they're saying they're received from God, and it allows them to, to justify their, their moral laxity. Sound familiar? Of course, these intruders in, in Jude's time appealed to their dreams to justify their sexual licentiousness, but of course, they didn't think they were doing anything wrong, any harm, or, or in any danger. But the actual result of the defilement, or the better rendering of polluting their own flesh, And whether this related to homosexual activities or not, we're reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, 
the immoral man sins against his own body. And also in Romans 1.27, that those immoral sins of sodomy will receive their own, in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Secondly, these intruders also rejected authority. In a similar way, if you notice those in our day who promote special visions and dreams as from the Lord, yet they live their lifestyles completely contrary to scriptural truths. They tend to be autonomous. They don't have any accountability. They don't set themselves up under the eldership of their local church. Maybe TV personality of like-mindedness, but like these re- intruders, they rejected authority. And it, we see this from the use of the, of the Greek word kyriotis, which is the same root as lordship or lord, meaning they fundamentally rejected Christ and his authority, flat out. And finally, in their autonomy and their rejection of the ultimate authority in Christ, these intruders go so far as to even blaspheme or slander celestial beings. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, these renderings as, as glories in celestial beings are, in a word, a term for angels. However, in the context of Jude and what we're going to see in, in verse 9 <coughs> about Michael, when he doesn't bring a slanderous accusation against Satan himself. The interpretation here in verse 8 is not so much a slandering of good angels, of God's messengers still in heaven, still at his service, but of bad angels, of demons. This is also in a broader context with 2 Peter 2.10. And Jude's argument for this position would go something like this. These intruders insult demons, but Michael the archangel of God would not even presume to blaspheme the devil, but left his judgment to God alone. Now, if Michael, who had this high position and authority, would not even judge Satan, then how can these men be so proud as to judge demons, insult demons, who have, even the demons have a certain glory, even though they have sinned? So does this relate to, does this relate to another instance in Scripture where demons are slandered in a sense. You think of one other place in the book of Acts. Sons of Sceva, 19. Yeah. Not that these intruders were doing or attempting to do some kind of exorcism on their own, but very guilty of dismissing that spiritual power and even the physical demonstrations of evil angels without the authority of Jesus Christ to back them up. Remember, I know Paul, I know Christ, I know Paul, but who are you guys? Yeah. <clears throat> Can you think of any modern-day terms? I know we're probably familiar with it in our background to demonstrate this from a Pentecostal charismatic circle. You know, I bind you, demon, and pimples, whatever, you know, <laughs> be released. That, I mean, it's frighteningly sad. Yeah, it's real, but to try to exercise that kind of authority over a demonic spirit without the authority of Christ. You are setting yourself up for only the Lord knows. But now in verse 9, this is one of the more difficult verses to examine and understand, mainly because of the source of the story that Jude's referring to and how we apply it to the false teachers. From what we just investigated, we can see a main point forming that the opponents in the church insulted glorious angels who were cast out of heaven and now under Satan's realm. But in in verse 9, Michael's humility 
even with his authority, to ask the Lord to rebuke Satan and not make any presumptive condemnations. Now, we know of Michael. He is an archangel. We know of him from Daniel 10, uh, verses 13, I think it is. Right now, 13 and 21. Okay. Um, and he's identified there as a prince, a great prince. Um, in Revelation 12, he battles the dragon. So he is a real entity, is a real being, is a messenger of God, the archangel. And he's also predominant throughout Jewish literature. And we know in Deuteronomy 34, 6, it's talking about the Lord buried the body of Moses. And he says specifically, and he buried, this is he, the Lord, buried him, Moses, in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. So even with this scripture, speculation arose over his burial since no human witnessed the burial place. And this scripture doesn't refer to Michael or Satan at all. So the, the puzzling aspect of verse 9 is, is that Jude is not citing an Old Testament reference, but an apocryphal work. This is another one of those works called the Assumption of Moses. And there's debate uh, even within that work. But I won't go down that rabbit trail. That, I wasted a half an hour on that. But anyway, um, this writing, this Assumption of Moses, proposes a type of legal dispute over Moses' body where Satan attempts to establish Moses' guilt for killing the Egyptian and attempts to deprive Moses of an honorable burial. Okay, this is what the assumption of Moses is talking about, not scripture. It would then seem that Michael had every right to criticize the devil because of his motives and utter this reviling judgment against the devil. Now, Michael's words, the Lord rebuke you, do come from the Old Testament. They're not Michael's words, but in Zechariah 3.2, it says, The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So the account of Zechariah represents another attempt of Satan to establish guilt and condemnation on one of Yahweh's servants, Joshua the high priest. Okay? Hang with me here. <laughs> Joshua was, was in the presence of the Lord, clothed in filthy garments, representing his sin, but Yahweh himself pronounced the judgment against Satan for his accusations. It is then God's word that brings forgiveness, and this is illustrated by the clean garments for Joshua. Now, just as this is an example in Zechariah that's showing that the Lord's own verdict was fully effective in sealing Satan's defeat, in this legal courtroom setting, declaring Joshua's vindication. It's also true the use of Michael's words in Jude that appeal to the Lord's rebuke against Satan and sealing forgiveness for Moses. So this, this kind of provides a counterexample to the false teachers in that Michael would not overstep his bounds on a topic on which his accusation would be justified but the intruders overstep theirs in an area where their accusations are not even justified. They don't have any reason or bounds or authority. So I know that was kind of long, but it, it was, I had to get into it, so I <laughs> hope it helped. So I hope this non-canonical work doesn't puzzle us. Um, we don't know if he believed this account was historically accurate or if he cited it just to make a point. 
but he be, it appears that he believed this story was a part of history. It was taught among the Jewish uh, nation. So from this, throw this just thought out, to question out for thought, should we include that in the canon of Scripture? If Jude thought the assumption of Moses might be inspired, but that's just sideline. Do we see this occurring anywhere else in Scripture? Where? Corinthians references other Corinthian letters too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. He hit all three. Yep. So Acts 17. Okay, Deb. Yeah, he's talking about Eratus. And then 1 Corinthians 15, Euripides, and then Titus 12, Epimenides. So Paul was using those apocryphal writings and even those Greek poetries to get a point across. They weren't saying, this is canonical, we've got to put it in Scripture. Yeah, to get an example across. So we need to be careful in any conclusion that says if we, we cite from a book, it means the entire book is inspired. So Jude simply viewed this story as helpful and apply applicable illustration to the, the teaching he was giving. So finally, in verse 10, we're just going to make it, thank the Lord. Jude, Jude again starts with this derogatory use of these men. You, you can almost hear his, his disgust, and it's these intruders who stand in stark contrast of the example of Michael asking the Lord to rebuke the devil. These men slander they blaspheme, they revile what they do not even understand. They believe they understand heavenly things, angelic things, spiritual and godly things, but they are way out of their depth. The only thing they understood is their physical appetite. Their God is their appetite. They're enemies of the cross and their, whose glory is their shame. They're driven by physical desires just like animals are with no rational thought or any moral compass. To be blunt, they comprehend truth like a hyena rather than follow the reason and truth of God's word. And to quote another, this is the same commentator, but I love his summary here. The eschatological judgment will strike the false teachers in Jude's churches just as it struck the desert generation, the angels who sinned, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I realize after reading this and studying this, how weighty this was, how sobering it was. So, on this first section, I, as I mentioned last week, that probably the severity of this letter is probably one, one of the reasons a lot of people don't read it, but it is still God's word. And as I mentioned earlier, even these warnings of error and belief and judgment are for our sanctification, as well as the promises and the doctrinal truths of Christ in eternity. So kind of help us take a step back and, and look at God's more of a glimpse of his redemptive plan, his character, um, his attributes, how they parallel his justice and holiness. Um, I'd like for us all to turn to Psalms. I wanna, want you to note, just pay attention to these words that David used, Psalm 145, revealing the glories of our Heavenly Father. But see if you can see the, the parallels here. Read this along with me and, and pray it. Psalm 145. I'll close with this. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. 
Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and I will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear the cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love him but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's go worship the Lord.